Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We're going to be looking at the parables of Matthew 25. Remember, we were there last week with the bridesmaids. So this time we're going to the parable, the talents, um, one of the hard ones, I think, for us to interpret and read. So I'm going to let Alan dig into his, uh, his study for the week. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, we are continuing to make our way through the chapter of parables in Matthew 25. And as we mentioned last week, they emphasize the importance of being ready for the Son of Man to return by practicing consistent discipleship. And as I mentioned last week, that's a theme I think we can all, we can all get behind. Now, while many read this particular parable from a positive perspective as a means of encouragement, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, right? The way that Matthew concludes the parable leaves open the question of whether that, was, that is what was intended. And we're, we're mm-hmm. going to get into that. It's a, it's a, the, the ending of the parable is very problematic. It is problematic. It is. And, uh, well, it, once we get to the uh, reformers, I think you'll find very interesting what happens there. But this has such a history, I guess, is what yep. I'm trying to say, of it reading does. it within this positive light. It does. And um, I think uh, there's more there than that. So I'm, I'm curious to see where you go with this. Yeah. So um, continue on. What, what else do we know about it? Well, as, uh, and as uh, we've been dealing with this uh, material in the so-called judgment discourse, at least what Gene Boring calls the judgment discourse in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 23 through 25, and, and the parable of talents continues this judgment discourse. And so it should come as no surprise to learn that there are connections between this parable and the other judgment parables in Matthew's gospel. And in fact, the lack of any introduction to this parable other than as if, when just, it's the Greek word hosper, um, that connects the parable of the talents with the parable of the bridesmaids, it basically points to the idea that the parable of the talents continues the themes of judgment, the coming of the Son of Man, and the importance of consistent discipleship that were already mm-hmm. emphasized in that mm-hmm. parable. Okay. So it's like a continuation. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, is this something that that we know is authentically Jesus? Well, I think as we, as we saw last week with the parable of the bride, bridesmaids, it would seem likely that Jesus told an original form of this parable that was elaborated on by Matthew and, okay. and possibly even elaborated on in the oral tradition uh, um, as well. We find a similar parable in Luke 19, 11 through yeah. 27. It's the parable of the minus or the na is the Greek word. Um, and by comparison, a talent is 6,000 denarii and a mina is 100 denarii, which mm. is a much more realistic sum of money given the time and, and the situation and the economic situation. Um, we cannot think of Q, however, as a source that Matthew and Luke both drew upon. Normally when we have the same, you know, content in Matthew and Luke, we think about Q right. as the source. Because although there are similarities between the parables, there the differences are many and significant. For example, mm. there are 10 slaves in Luke's parable, not 3. And mm-hmm. the mina mm-hmm. is 100 denarii, which is quite different from a 
Even one talent, one talent is 6,000 denarii. I mean, you know, that's just an incredible fortune. So there is a reference also to a different version of the parable in the reconstruction of the Gospel of Nazarenes. Now, um, you may have heard of the Gospel of the Nazarenes. It's one of the apocryphal Gospels, but the only source we have for it are are references to it in early church fathers. And so uh, we only have a reconstructed version. In that version, there are three slaves, one who squandered his master's substance with harlots and flute girls, Mm -hmm. one who multiplied the game, and one who hid the talent. And so... Mm -hmm. You know, um, we have different versions of the same parable. Right. So I think it, it, that 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 kind of points to the conclusion that Matthew is responsible for shaping the parable, the talents, as we have it in in this talent. passage, mm-hmm. for his own purposes in his gospel. You know, I keep thinking about oral tradition. This seems to me to be something that was known and part of the oral tradition. Um, yeah, and, and we're going to see. We're going to see. I, I think we can point clearly to where the oral tradition has has influenced this parable. And, Excellent, excellent. You know, Alan, I, I know that we know this, but as, as Americans um, who read this, we don't always see talent in terms of coins. Yeah. We sometimes interpret this in terms of abilities, that kind of thing. Right. And, Can and, you address that? Well, and that's actually, that's, that's one, of the, one of the historic interpretations of this parable. It's not just in American English. It's, um, you know, throughout history. Okay, um, okay. Uh, the, the, the talents have been interpreted uh, figuratively as abilities. Mm-hmm. But a talent mm-hmm. was 6,000 denarii. It was an incredible fortune of right. money. So, uh, five that's talents. How, that's how... That's how Matthew would have understood this. Absolutely, that, that, absolutely. It was clearly a, a, a monetary. A, a, thing. It was clearly about money. I mean, it, the the introduction is that the master turns his property over to his slaves, right? Okay. So okay. It, it, this right. is a parable okay. about money. This is not a right. parable about you know giving your time and talents to the church. Right. <laughs> I only wanted to say that because I um, I just continue to hear people reference it in terms of abilities and that kind of thing. And oh, yeah. I, I thought, well, I want to make sure we are keep everyone's on the same page when we get started here. So, um, I, you know, okay. I think I think really, really, um, as I said, the parable is about consistent discipleship. Okay, very good. So with that in mind, um, you know, what it's in Matthew shaped it. Tell us more about how Matthew shaped it. Well, uh, again, one of the things that we're going to notice throughout this parable is that Matthew's version of the parable is influenced by his overall theology. And so there will be elements where we'll have to look at the way Jesus' audience would have heard it and then look at the way Matthew's community would have heard it. Mm, and there are differences there. Point. There are differences there, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So how does it begin? So Matthew launches straight into the content of the parable without any introduction, which is unusual if this is meant to be read as a parable of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Matthew simply says in verses 14 and 15, For it is, as if a, it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. Does that... Does his the way he begins have something to do with the one that just came before it, the parable of the bridesmaids? Well, like I said, he just he just links it with with a simple phrase hosper, and and so okay. it's okay. it, as it, or, so it's or not as necessarily, if. 
the theology of that one coming into this one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea okay. is that this parable is a continuation of, on the same a continuation. theme. Continuation. Okay. Yeah, it's a okay. continuation on I the same theme. I think you said that and I misunderstood, but now yeah, everyone's sure. very clear. <laughs> okay, no worries. No worries. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. Yeah. And so, okay, moving on. <laughs> so, one of the things we should recognize at the outset is that a parable about a master entrusting his property to his slaves and then going on a journey was a familiar story used to teach various points in Jewish context. So, this wouldn't have been anything surprising in Jesus' original setting. Uh, again, as we emphasized, in the setting of the parable, a talent is a large sum of money. Um, 6,000 denarii represented approximately 16 years worth of wages for an average labor. 16 that's, years. That's crazy. Right? Uh, five talents would have been an unbelievably large sum of money. And, right. and some, some New Testament scholars on Matthew will point out that Matthew likes to um, enhance these numbers, numbers like this, whereas Luke's version where each, each um, um, gets a mina, each slave gets a mina, that's 100 denarii. That seems a lot more credible, given the right. economics of that so situation. Even a single talent is really quite a fortune. It's a huge fortune. So that's, I think, that's an important thing to, it's, it's like you can, it's not, I think we tend to read this as, oh, well, the one talent's not very much, so he, he really needed that money to live on. I mean, no, no, so, no, he yeah. had a huge fortune. And, and as I meant, you know, last, last time we did this three years ago, I, I suggested we might, it might be better for us to call this the, the parable of the fortune funds. Because yes, I remember that. Even the exactly. one talent is is a, a huge fortune. Right. You know what's funny, Alan, as we're doing this again, um, a few years later here, three years later, I keep thinking of how my mind has to be reminded of this, though, mm -hmm. because you tend to fall back into mm -hmm. these other patterns of reading. So just a reminder, this is a lot of money, folks. <laughs> it is a lot of money. It is a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. So the fact that the master entrusted his property to his slaves according to his ability introduces an element of discrimination into the parable. And the question is whether that discrimination is intended in a positive sense or in a negative sense. Mm -hmm. You know, in a positive sense, we could see it as the idea would be that no more was entrusted to each than they were deemed fit to handle. In a negative sense, the idea would be that from the outset, the slaves received different treatment, which could at the very least call into question the master's fairness. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if Jesus' original parable was about a wealthy aristocrat or perhaps even a client king, given the sums of money we're talking about, it might be a client king, it would be assumed that the master was acting according to his own wishes without any real concern for the slaves. So that would be more of a negative take on the discrimination. Mm -hmm. But in Matthew's setting, one is reminded of the idea in the New Testament that every believer receives gifts that are to be used in ministry, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned and according to the grace given to us. That's mm -hmm. Romans mm -hmm. 12. And, right. and we see this reflected in various places throughout the New Testament. And, of course, that's a more positive read. And I think probably right. Matthew intended for us to read it more positively. But I would say in Jesus' original parable, it was a, it was a more negative kind of um, idea. Okay. Yeah. So okay. Matthew is Matthew is using the parable to 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 make his own points uh, that probably were different from the parable that Jesus was intending the points that yeah, Jesus was intending to make in his original parable. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know it it makes me wonder if then does Matt, Matthew have a fundamentally different theology than Jesus? 
I don't think so, and we'll talk about that. Um, okay. I think I think his view of judgment and the role of judgment in the kingdom of God is is fundamentally different from Jesus. Um, okay. Jesus, I think Jesus' theology of the kingdom is much more about grace and acceptance and about inclusion than Matthew. But for, for, as we talked about before, for some reason, Matthew sees the need to warn the believers in his own community that some of them are um, <laughs> are wise and some of them are foolish. Some of them are are righteous and some of them are evil. And, and not every one of them will be... Yeah. Um, uh, welcomed into the kingdom of God unless they do the will of God consistently, Interesting. which is kind of, uh, that's, that's what, that's what constitutes consistent discipleship but you in can Matthew's see the confusion. View. You can, can yeah. see the confusion here as we're trying to make sense of these, uh, of these writings. Um, well, and, and, to- and that's one of the things we're going to find is this, this parable, I think by, by it's, by the way it's constructed in Matthew's gospel opens up the door to that confusion. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So how does it continue? Well, Matthew continues uh, with uh, by saying, At once the one who had received five talents went off and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the, original, the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Um, and so in the original setting, um, the only way that the first two slaves would have been able to make that much profit so quickly. I mean, we're talking about five talents, you know, that's Mm -hmm. 30,000 denarii. (laughs) The only way that that they would have been able to make that much profit so quickly was either by dealing with commodities or speculating in land, both of which Mm -hmm. would have been viewed as risky endeavors and perhaps even almost foolhardy endeavors. And as well, the assumption would have been that in order to gain so much profit so quickly, they would have had to resort to business tactics that were suspect ethically and perhaps Mm. even contrary to the Torah. So, uh, you know, in, the orig- in, in, the, in an original parable that Jesus might have told, this would have been the way in which I think the audience would have heard it. And, and yeah. in the original setting, also, the fact that the third slave buried his master's money very likely would have been viewed as a wise course of action because it would have been seen as ensuring the safety of what had been entrusted to him. Mm. So, uh, you know, that, that's not the way Matthew is intending us to read this, but um, it, that seems to be the way an original parable of Jesus would have been heard by his, by his, by his audience. Yeah, 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 I agree. <laughs> so, well, let's, keep, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, so it, but in Matthew's setting, the contrast between the first two slaves and the third slave is introduced from the outset with at once, this, this whole section begins with at once, and it's eutheos. And I think Matthew's audience would have recalled that the original disciples of Jesus responded to his call in the same way. They left mm-hmm. their nets and their boats immediately in Matthew mm-hmm. chapter 4. Right. Furthermore, um, the new RSV translates it that they, they went off and traded with them, right? But, mm-hmm. but the verb is, is ergazomai. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, working with the money in, in Matthew's context um, that they had been entrusted with would have been a positive idea, reminding the community of the importance of carrying out the work of the kingdom and bearing fruit. Remember, mm-hmm. um, in Matthew 5.16, he says, you know, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine so that people may see your good works and glorify God. 
right? And so good works are a good thing in Matthew. And this is something that goes along with that whole theme of consistent discipleship means carrying out the will of the Father in your life. So from this perspective, then the, the first two slaves are seen as positive examples um, right. Whereas the third slave who did nothing with what was entrusted to him would have been, would have been seen as a failure to respond in faithful discipleship. I think yes, in Matthew's yes, context. Yes. Yeah. That most people are in tune with that. Yeah. Interpretation. That's still so, the way most people read it today. Yeah. Right. Right. A- a- absolutely. Although embedded in that are all kinds of question marks, which we'll get into a little surely, bit, for example surely. of, well, you know, is if he was, Bearing, I mean, if he had a talent and he was bearing it, is he really a true disciple after all? Because right. when, and all those kinds of questions. But for now, let's leave it with that because we have more, more to go. So yes, what indeed. comes next? So Matthew continues the parable with the notice that after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled that accounts with them in verse 19. Yep. And the scene with the first two slaves is repeated verbatim. This is mm-hmm. interesting. Word for word, and when you know, in a gospel where there's you know, space is at a premium and you don't waste space, that verbatim repetition was intentional on Matthew's part. Mm, absolutely. So, um, uh, both have doubled what they received, both received the same commendation. Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, I think it's interesting that the fact that five talents, again, we're talking about 30,000 denarii, (laughs) uh, 80 years worth of salary, (laughs) roughly, uh, or even two talents, um, which would have been 30 years worth of salary, could have been described as a few things. You've been faithful in a few things. um, would Would have suggested that the master was actually a Gentile client king not right. a Jewish aristocrat, because that much, that much wealth was simply not available uh, to most people in, in, in Jewish Palestine. And such extravagant sums um, would have left the people, the ones hearing Jesus' original parable, feeling like outsiders looking in because the kind, that kind of wealth was just simply not available to the common people. Mm-hmm. Even the mina, uh, the, to me, the mina seems much more likely to have been in the original parable of Jesus because right. that that seems like that w- even the mina would have been a lot of money for most right. most of the of of Jesus hearers so um you know uh, this whole idea of talents and this much money i think would have been a reminder to that to to Jesus original audience of of the foreigners who were lording it over mm-hmm. them basically essentially controlling their lives well and 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 the use of the the word slave and that, you know, mm-hmm. somebody that they, they works with them, they own, they, mm-hmm. you know, in that context too suggests this is a, I think you tend to see this as a nice guy who's given him this right. money, but it's, right. it's, it's not, it's someone no. has power over right. them. So exactly. I think that I like that. I think that's yeah. a good, a good way to look at it. Um, now well, let's in, talk more about these slaves. Well, in Matthew's setting, the fact that the master calls the two slaves faithful 
it's pistos, would have reminded his audience of the parable of the faithful slave in Matthew 24, 45 to 46. We didn't deal with that in the lectionary this year, but basically it's a story about the, the, the faithful slave whom the master entrusts with the running of his household and who is pronounced blessed for doing what his master instructed him to do. And I, you know what, we, we should be able to hear the echoes of doing the father's will, you know, do, um, doing, uh, producing fruit. Um, and they may also have been familiar with the saying that was found in Luke 16.10, that whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And so here, perhaps, you know, the oral tradition has influenced Matthew, um, this idea of uh, being faithful in little, um, uh, therefore you'll be given much. Now, the fact that the reward is the same for both slaves, entering the joy of their master, um, would have resonated with the theme of entering the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel, and it would also recall um, the fact that the workers in the vineyard all receive the same reward in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20. And so, again, Matthew's community would have seen these two slaves as paradigms of faithful discipleship. These are the ones who are doing the Father's will. These are the ones who are producing the fruit of the kingdom. So what about the 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 third slave. Well, one of the features of this parable in Matthew's gospel is that it gives much more attention to the dialogue between the master and the third slave. In fact, it's almost as if the rest of the parable is setting up the dialogue between the master and the third slave. Mm -hmm. And the dialogue between the master and the third slave is also very similar to what we find in the parable of the minas in Luke 19. Mm -hmm. So this seems to be the focus of the parable. When the third slave came forward, he said, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And in response, the master calls him literally an evil and useless slave. It's paneros, or evil or wicked, and okneros, or useless slave. Mm -hmm. and, and basically then, again, the master repeats verbatim the slave's assessment of his character. And again, Matthew would not have done that just on a whim. This was intentional. Right. This repetition was intentional. Yeah. So then the master chides him, saying, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on return I would have received what was my own with interest, in verse 27. As a result, the master orders the others to take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. And, of course, this would represent a loss and an embarrassment, but it wouldn't be unexpected, perhaps, in that setting. In Luke's version, we should note, this is all the punishment he receives. Mm -hmm. he, is, he is stripped of his mina, and, right. and his mina is taken from him and given to the one who had ten. But we should note that in Luke's parable, the hearers object even to that, <laughs> which is significant in Luke's context. Yeah, it, it is significant in Luke's context because this is... This is this is different, right? It is very different Matthew. in Matthew, yeah. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. in the original okay. setting, then these details would have reinforced the impression that the parable Jesus told was about a Gentile aristocrat or even perhaps a client king mm -hmm. who was demanding and greedy, someone exactly. truly to be feared, someone who was truly a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter, you know, someone to be afraid mm -hmm. of. So... Um, um, that seems to be, you know, 
how Jesus' original parable was framed. But in the context of Matthew's gospel, the third slave's characterization of the master would have been confusing. Here we have to take up the question of the identity of the master in the parable in Matthew's gospel. Because in Matthew's gospel, the master, and the word's kurios, and remember Matthew is fond of having people call Jesus, especially having people who are who are coming at Jesus with a perspective of faith. Matthew's fond of using the, the, the title kurios for Jesus. Yes. And it's, it's used more in Matthew's gospel than in, in any of the other gospels. Interesting. And so in Matthew's gospel, um, the, the audience would have identified the master or the kurios with Jesus. And Matthew's audience knows him to be the very opposite of the slave's description. He is the one who yeah. is gentle and humble in heart and whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light in Matthew 11, uh, among many other places where Jesus demonstrates his kindness and care. So I agree with Lutz. Ulrich Lutz suggests that the overall image of Jesus in the gospel would have colored the way his community read this parable. And I would say my qualification of that is, at least up to this point, <laughs> at least up to this point, I think Lutz is right, that, that um, the overall image of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew would have colored the way his community read this parable. I remember talking about this whole depiction as being perhaps having a tone of voice of mockery. So are we changing that understanding? Well, I again, um, the last time we did this three years ago, I, I we hadn't worked through the whole Gospel of Matthew like we have, and I I, mm-hmm. I wasn't as aware of the extent to which Matthew has reshaped probably what what he found in the tradition, even in in writing, uh, to 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 fit in with his own theological purposes, and so um, I think I think that's what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with an original parable of Jesus that would have been about a client king who was harsh and greedy. Um, and, and Matthew has, has shifted that into a parable about discipleship so that the master is Jesus and, Jesus. and the slaves okay. Are, are, okay. are disciples. Yes. Yeah. So what, oh, what an interesting, yeah, I see that. And I'm thinking about the listeners probably familiar with this story and now seeing it swing to they they Jesus may not language. have known of the original parable of Jesus. Well, that's uh, this true. may have been we the only know. access they had to this parable of Jesus was that's in Matthew's true. gospel. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, I, we don't know, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, let's. So that makes, but this changes it, right? It I does. Mean, so it changes from the original if we're starting to see it through this different lens. So yeah. what happens? So we we might say that perhaps the original conclusion of the parable. Uh, was in Matthew twenty five twenty nine for to all those who have more will be given and they will have an abundance but from those who have nothing even what they have will be taken away. Now, first of all, this doesn't fit very well with the details of this parable, right? Oh. Because uh-uh. um, um, it, it's 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 not that the the third slave has nothing; it's that he didn't do anything with what he had, and and so um, um, you know this conclusion doesn't fit just on the, on, the, on the surface of things. Luke's version of the parable, however, concludes in the same way. But this exact saying is also found in Matthew 13, 12, which is parallel to Mark 4, 25. That's the parables chapter That's with right. a very different meaning. And this, this suggests to most scholars that it was added to the parable at some point in the tradition prior to Matthew and Luke. And, and so perhaps 
Uh, the idea is that going along with the original sense of Jesus' parable, which is about a, um, a harsh and greedy uh, client king, perhaps, who, who is demanding um, performance on the part of his slaves, uh, perhaps the, in the oral tradition then, it was intended to, to criticize those who greedily take whatever they can, implying a proverb like, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And um, a, a lot of New Testament scholars will see this verse as sort of a verse that was added by the oral tradition to um, the original parable of Jesus because it's found yeah. in both Matthew and Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. So there's, okay. this is one okay. point of agreement that seems to be prior to the writing of either Matthew mm. or Luke's gospel. Okay. But again, okay. again, if you read it that way, if you read the parable with that ending, you would think, oh, yeah, this is a parable about, yeah, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, right? I, 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 this is interesting, but yet when I'm looking at it in a broader context of what Matthew's trying to do, it doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. Well, and that, right, that's not what Matthew is inten- that's not what Matthew's right. intention is. Matthew is, is exactly. shaping this parable as a parable about discipleship for his yeah, community. Yeah, yeah. So it's it is weird that this gets stuck on there. I suppose. Oh. Well, I, and I again, I think I think in the oral tradition it would have made more sense because in the in the original par in the original parable, if it was about you know the greediness, uh, sort of criticizing the greediness uh, of a harsh uh, client king who basically wanted profit at any cost, no matter what, you know, uh, they had to do to get it. Um, uh, you know, I think that would make sense in the oral tradition originally. But, but in, in Matthew's context, it doesn't make a lot of sense at all. Because Matthew, oh is, Matthew is, is, is shaping it very differently. So is there anywhere else that we get this judgment theme that we talked about. Well, I mean, we've seen this already, you know, as elsewhere in the judgment discourse, Matthew picks up an earlier saying about judgment to conclude his version of the parable. And we've seen Matthew do this. He has echoed earlier judgment statements in his own gospel in this judgment discourse. And so in the conclusion to the parable in Matthew's version is, as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's a saying that's been repeated several times in Matthew's gospel already. Now, in Luke's parable, the violence is directed toward those who rebel against the master. It's a different mm-hmm. setting because, right, because right. The, 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 the master goes off to, to receive the, uh, basically authority over several towns and right. they rebel against him. And so as a result, then he, says, he sends his armies in to destroy him. And that's the conclusion of Luke's uh, parable. Right. But right. Uh, in Matthew... Um, it, you know, it is, it is this, quote-unquote, unfaithful, this, this evil and worthless slave who gets thrown into the outer darkness. Um, and, and again, you know, while we may be able to understand Matthew's reasons for wanting to urge his community to practice faithful discipleship, the implications of this verse are staggering, I think. It basically <laughs> leaves open the question whether Jesus is the master to whom we may entrust our final destiny— or a world judge who threatens to impose judgment right. harshly. Well, that's that's the problem, right? And that's going to yeah. lead to yeah. centuries of, of misunderstanding. Now, interestingly, so. um, it's Eusebius that is the one who quotes the, the portion, this parable uh, from the Gospel of the Nazarenes that we mentioned earlier. And he adds a comment after he 
recites uh, the version of this parable in the Gospel of the Nazarene. He said, I wonder whether if in Matthew the threat which is uttered after the word against the man who did nothing may not refer to him, basically the first one who had feasted and drunk with the drunken. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, in the Gospel of the Nazarenes, the parable is about one slave who, who squanders the money that was entrusted right. him, one slave who earns more, and one slave who hides it. And so he, right. you know, he, um, and, and in, in the Gospel of the Nazarenes, then, um, um, it's, the, it's, the mas- it's the one who squandered his master's substance who was thrown into prison, while the one who hid the talent was merely rebuked. That's the way the gospel of the Nazarenes went. And so Eusebius is talking here about Matthew's parable of the talents, and he thinks that maybe this, this verse in verse 30 should have been directed toward someone who squandered the talent, not someone who hid the talent. And, and, and so even Eusebius, uh, you know, back in the fourth century, right. saw this as a problem, right? That this, this, seems, mm-hmm. this seems to not fit. This seems to be problematic in terms of, of mm-hmm. wait, who is Jesus here? Is, is he, is he the, the master to whom we may entrust our, our lives? The one who is the, you know, God with us? The one who is gentle and humble in heart? <laughs> uh, right, or, is right. he, or is he a judge who, who imposes judgment harshly? interesting yeah um and that and really that really is is the is an open conflict. question i think about this parable yeah, it, it is and i think it's one that everyone who has worked with it is is, is dealt with and yes, i think indeed. that's why we have no really clear final um understanding of what we think it means i yeah. mean it, it it continues to it can i guess what i like is it continues to challenge us it does always. indeed it does indeed yeah. well and you know i've thought about this uh since we talked about our parable last week um um you know there are places for example in luke's gospel where jesus has sayings that are almost impossible unless you give up all that you own you cannot be my disciple right right and and we leave that we leave the tension to help pull us toward more faithful discipleship. Um, there are also other places in the New Testament where, for example, Paul could say to the Galatians, um, the issue there was circumcision, whether Gentiles had to be circumcised. And he said, if you accept circumcision, you have been cut off from grace. You know, you, you have fallen right. from grace. Right. You've been right. cut off. You have been cut off from Christ. Right. And, 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 and so, you know, you, but yet he's writing the letter to them. What's the point of his letter if it's not to try to win them back to the gospel right. of salvation by grace? Hebrews also has these warnings uh, to, the, to the audience against, mm-hmm. against falling away. Well, you know, what's the purpose? You know, in fact, in Hebrews, uh, the author says, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And so mm-hmm. that could be part of what Matthew's doing here. But the, the thing is, if it, if it is, Matthew's framing of it is too subtle. It's overly subtle because yeah. you don't have an obvious statement here of like, you know, while this is the, this is the possibility hanging out there, this is the threat that I'm going to, to hold out to you to try to motivate you to consistent discipleship. I'm, mm-hmm. I don't believe that that's going to happen to you. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. Right, 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 right. So yeah, it's, um, you know, Lutz, Lutz in his commentary, again, argues that Matthew's community would have read this parable primarily from the perspective of their understanding of Jesus as the one who not only proclaimed but also embodied God's gracious acceptance in the kingdom. And, you know, we see that in Matthew's gospel. 
I mean, right. there is plenty of grace in Matthew's gospel. But even Lutz has to admit that the threat of punishment here in verse 30, consisting of wailing and gnashing of teeth, creates a note of fear that leaves open the nature of judgment and leaves open yes, the yes. nature of who is the judge, really. Right. You know, right. I, and personally, I would say, you know, Lutz argues that Matthew's community was familiar enough with the whole gospel that they would have read the majority of the parable as an encouragement to faithful discipleship. I think mm-hmm. he's probably right yeah. about that. I think they had right. that much understanding or that they, they were familiar enough with the content of Matthew's gospel. But most people these days don't have that level of familiarity. Right? That's true. That's and, true. And, and in the history yeah. of interpretation, individual verses have, we've seen plenty of times when individual verses have been given more weight than they deserve. Oh, and, yes. And yes, when, yes, when yes, Matthew yes. 25, 30 is the lens through which this parable is read, then the image of judgment becomes much more harsh and exacting than we hear mm-hmm. from Jesus. But that seems to be what Matthew intended. And that's, that's, the, that's the confusing part of this parable. But that's confusing. That's confusing. Exactly. Again, um, you know, his motivation seems to be to, to, to urge his, his community to, to consistent and faithful discipleship. Right. But I, I really wrestle with how he's trying to accomplish that. I, I think so, too. Well, <laughs> we're going to talk in a minute about um, Protestant reformers, in particular Calvin, how this becomes such a backbone for his theology. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Hi, friends, we're back, and uh, we're going to see how Calvin took a look at this passage, which was probably pretty significant for the Reformers. (laughs) Yeah, it is, and I find this interesting because in most of the parables— Calvin really doesn't incorporate them at all into the Institutes, which is his big theology piece. But this one he does huh. in a couple places. Wow. Um, so, and, and it's, it really has to do with, with grace um, and ultimately then about predestination. But I want to step back because at least this parable for him is about perseverance, much as the bridesmaids before it. Sure. Um, But the bigger question is, what is perseverance? And he uses it as a passage to understand the perseverance of God. Hmm. And fundamentally, perseverance, in Calvin's view, is trusting in God's grace. Right. But in the history of a rewards-oriented theology, i.e., the Roman Catholic Church, perseverance is gaining rewards because of good works. Hmm. So there's two different spaces there. Is Is it coming from God and God's trust and faith, or is it coming from the individual that your faith is maintaining your you and God? So it, you're seeing these fundamental Reformation issues coming yep. out. So for Calvin, the good works theology is a complete misunderstanding of perseverance, which is part of God's grace that is freely given by God. And he is warning us that we do not gain favor by what we do. Right. And he gives a couple pieces here first he says that we should not say that the first grace is rewarded in other words humans do not by their own effort make effort make god's grace effective right Ooh, right that's that's big stuff and so he doesn't use the terms prevenient grace here um and i'm not sure when that terminology started to come in and part of the theological discussion actually but it's clear that he has this idea that grace is not something that we do 
um, but rather that grace is something God does in us. Well, and that makes sense. It does. It does. It's good Reformed theology. So yeah. the reward is just a response to God's yes. free grace. Yeah. The, the is, faithfulness, I, the, the, the consistent discipleship that Matthew would be encouraging is a response to God's grace. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the whole thing with him, though, is that we don't do any of it. And that's where it gets tough. Is even faith itself? Is even faith itself something we do? And yeah. in, in this space, not always in Calvin, but in this space, he says, no. Wow. We don't do any of it. So it's not that Methodism of that we have to come up to God and mm. God comes down. No, it's all done through God. So that changes the um, whole notion of responsibility on the part of the different slaves. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll get to that in a minute, how this works in this. Um, but I want to point out, as I said, he's not always consistent right. with this position in the entirety of his commentaries. Um, so, But here... In the Institute, where he's working on theological cohesion, he comes out with one of the hallmarks of Calvinism, which is the concept of irresistible grace. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned that Calvin uses this passage specifically in support of this. He says that, mm. quote, believers are to expect the blessing of God. The better use they have made of their prior graces, the more they may follow graces be there that are thereafter increased. The idea of the talents. So, so, so the first two slaves increased their talents because God en enabled them to. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Interesting. Not what they did, but yeah. God working in them. Wow. The kind of, I think it's hard to wrap your head around. That's huge. And though. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sure if Calvin, in his fullness, actually argue, actually agrees with this point, but. He argues it, um, especially when considering, um, um, but he argues it here. He is really wants to make a distinction by what he calls operative grace and cooperative grace. Ah. And he ends up quoting Augustine, quote, God, by cooperating, perfects that which by operating he has begun. Wow. In other words, we naturally follow the grace once it is at work within us. Of course, that leads to a theology regarding election. For if you aren't responding to God's grace, then you aren't chosen to do so. Mm -hmm. Ha, the third slave. Right, right. Here's the grace, handed to him. He's not responding. Therefore, right. he wasn't. And that explains the, the, the end wow. of the parable that's so harsh. Wow, right? okay. Because he's never, because yeah. he's, he's, he's not elect. He's mm -hmm. not meant to respond to the grace. He's not, he's repro reprobate, right? Right. So by um, definition, the, the third slave was always uh -huh. going to have that fate. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. So anyway, this is where Calvin lands. But I want to turn back to good works a little bit. Um, and, and really what I see is going on here. So good works in Calvin's world. Um, so I want to go back because I want to say what, how Calvin gets here. And I think one of the challenges people, modern people have is they look at Calvin's position and their eyes get big and they're like, ooh, how awful that there would be these people that are, you know, destined not to be saved, yeah. if you will. And I think you have to understand Calvin's worldview better. And so I want to turn to the good works. Good works in Calvin's world come naturally from God's grace. So this is why people are doing them. It, it's something, you, it's just responsive of grace. Uh, but they are never perfect 
and they're always marred by human sin. I think that's a huge point. I really do. You know, that good works come naturally from God's grace. They don't come from our determination, from our intention, from our faithfulness. They come from God's grace. Yeah, exactly. And they're never perfect. Yeah. So he juxtaposes this scripture with John 1.16, which the quote, increases of the believers are the gifts freely given. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is interesting as he actually sees it as a contradiction. He says, while Matthew 25, 29 does, does imply that one is given gifts according to merit, he then turns around to promote a different scripture on top of it. In other words, he's picking the scripture that best conforms to his theology, but really doesn't deal well with this particular talent scripture at all. Well, but I can so understand again, it. I mean, because, you know, that whole statement about, you know, to everyone who has, more will be given, and to the one who doesn't, the, wasn't, the one who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away. That doesn't seem to make sense, you know, in, in a lot of respects, unless you read the parable as a parable about a harsh client king who's greedy and, and doesn't care about, all he cares about is profits. Exactly. Exactly. So, I wanted to move beyond Calvin and see what other Reformed tradition voices said. And I looked, um, um, I think logically that this um, would be grace given, but not received. So I'm looking at the work of Heinrich Bullinger. For Bullinger, the person with the talent is a hypocrite. The one talent is a hypocrite. Again, what we talked about before is someone claiming the election who is not actually Mm. elect. It is, in other words, if you are elect, you would, by God's grace, working in you, naturally increase wow. that grace. And Bullinger actually says of the stripping away of the talent, quote, it is a punishment far graver to be stripped of the gifts of God and for one's heart than to be left empty of God and all piety. Wow. <laughs> that's that's in intense. Yeah. But he's yeah. following the same approach basically that that if yeah. if if the if the third slave had truly accepted God's grace, he would have naturally produced another talent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Accepted God's grace that God had already worked in within him. Right. Oh. Right. So in other words, it's 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 kind of better not to know about God at all. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's you're seeing some problems here, right? right? I mean, the whole thing is you have to hear the scripture to to be able to I guess, start God's grace working in you because you don't necessarily have it. But if you are not one of those elect who are going to res- can, can respond to it and been called to respond to it, then better you not hear it at all. Wow. I guess. Wow. I guess. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I, and there are people who actually advocate that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, um, so to be completely committed to one theological point necessitates some pretty harsh response on the role of God in creation. And of course, this is much of the tension that comes into rigid Calvinism, Yes. right? Because all this gets picked up by the rigid Calvinists. Yes. Um, so if there is predestination, of course, those who do respond are clearly not saved. And this doctrine makes modern day people angry. But if I said this before, this doctrine ultimately was to give people assurance not judgment. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things we have to understand. To understand how Calvin came to this kind of extreme position is really understanding the works righteousness of the medieval era that preceded it. And of course, the far great fear of not being saved that was part of the era. And 
that's something for modern people that we can't wrap our brains around. Mm -hmm. So even remember the selling indulgences on the eve of the Reformation and the very real question people had about their own salvation. It came in a time when death was always at hand, plague, war, disease, childbirth. And when people believed that their bad situation was really part of God's dissatisfaction Mm -hmm. with them. It was judgment visited upon them. judgment. Yep. So the idea that you could win favor by God by what you do was very much ingrained in the pre-Reformation mindset. Mm. And so I looked at the work of, of Robert Scribner. He's a phenomenal historian who did a lot of work on popular religious belief and the formal practices of the church, um, indulgence, and the Roman Catholic sin, confession, and penance cycle. Yeah. And um, how all of this completely infiltrated popular culture. Yep. Yeah. As he writes, you could do something, quote, impure and yet have your sins swept away by honoring the abbot, right? So this idea that just by doing the right thing, you could could fix your sins, but yet they were always worried about being in sin. It was a strange Hmm. um, cycle. And that was the whole... That was a whole cycle that actually still maintained in the Roman Catholic tradition, right? Well, and I would say, I would say, still has influence on a lot of people, um, even people Mm -hmm. in my church. Exactly. You know, so you sin, you go to confession, you give in penance, then you take the sacrament, then you sin, and that whole Mm -hmm. cycle, and um, that, yeah, that continuing of, I, I, I constantly have to be, I constantly have to be doing. To be in favor. So yep. this is obsessed. To be in a state of grace, yeah. So um, when Calvin and the other formers are condemning works then, it is much bigger than merely a pr- criticism of Roman Catholic practice. They are, they are seeking to sh- have an entire paradigm shift about who God is and how God operates in the world. So when we look at the Institutes, and this is why it's so significant, we are seeing the first attempt to not only define who God is, but how God works in the world and ultimately how we are part of God's creation. Mm. It's a whole other step behind the work that Luther does. Yeah. Um, and I think in our minutia, we forget about this monolithic task. Yeah. So That's a big assured, project. It's a big project. And it's foundational. So assured, exactly, assured. And we do that in our liturgy today. You know, assurance of forgiveness, right? Right. Um, assured, to be assured of your salvation changes the entire relationship between humanity and God and offers a sense of joy and hope into living into that salvation rather than the fear of doom. Yeah, I judgment. would agree with that 100%. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Scribner talked at length about the imagery, the last judgment in pre-Reformation literature and iconography. And there was frequently the image of the scale, mm. right? With the idea that the scale tipped too far to evil and you would end up in hell. Mm-hmm. And this, this is a fear-laden image that led people to do the things that they thought would save them. You know, all these works of penance and indulgences. But the Reformation itself was, according to another scholar, uh, Wilhelm Puckert, an apocalyptic age and thus would in itself create great change. Mm. So here you are in the midst of this apocalyptic age, wondering if you have done enough, and then hearing the message from the reformers that you need not worry, that your salvation is assured. So imagine the intensity. Mm. So on top of what Calvin's doing is this additional sense of fear. So for modern ears, 
We tend to have not so much angst around the end times and not to fear whether or not we are saved. But this was very real when Calvin wrote the Institutes. And remember that it was during this time that the Pope and the entire trappings of the papacy became associated with the Antichrist, mm. an entire church bureaucracy associated with evil, including its ecclesiology and its theology. So this is replaced, if you will, by the true church, right? The true church that Luther talks about and Calvin talks about, and with it, the assurance of those who live into God's grace that they are chosen and that they are saved. Mm. So... What I want to emphasize today is that Calvin uses this particular parable to encourage the believers. It's, it's supposed to encourage those people. Uh, those negative images in Calvin's mind are not the emphasis. Um, and he does not put, he said he doesn't really spend a lot of effort talking about the one who buried the one talent, but rather on the grace response by those who truly believe. Mm. So in Calvin's eyes, this is encouraging. And even though in our modern eyes, it seems to leave people out of the kingdom. Yeah. So that's fascinating. Thanks. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's really cool. Thanks. Hi, everyone. We're back, and in our little break there, I was I was lamenting to Alan that this is the Revised Common Lectionary text that comes up when I'm doing my one stewardship sermon Sunday, and thinking about, well, <laughs> you know, that, that's interesting. Um, there'd be, um, you know, you could present this in a really bad light yes, indeed. for that kind of, kind of thing. And so I'm trying to think about if I want to preach this and and what direction I, I want to go, you know, um, and uh, as we have told, because because it has so many levels of potential interpretation and so many, frankly, traditions of interpretation, um, even if I preach one that's on on on, on perseverance, for example, or, or, or the promise of grace, is that what they're going to hear? Right. Because they are so familiar with it. So, right. Uh, you know, um, and one of the ones Alan was talking about was being a, a parable of greed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, three years ago when we, when we, when we um, did the podcast on this parable, um, I, 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 I applied the view that, that I had read from some others that um, uh, perhaps the best take was that this was an ironical parable. Mm -hmm. I'm more convinced now that I think Jesus' original parable was told as a parable against greed, basically, against, mm -hmm. you know, greedy either client kings in, in Matthew's context or maybe aristocratic landowners in Luke's context. And, um, you know, uh, um, from that perspective, you know, it makes sense that, that the parable would, would, would have unfold the way it does because, you know, um, the, the master doesn't care about his slaves. All he cares about is profit. And, mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. so and and I'm 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 kind of persuaded that 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 was the original intention of, of Jesus' original parable because, um, as I mentioned before, both both Matthew and Luke have this statement um, for those who have they will be given more and they'll have an abundance and from those who have not to those who have nothing will even have what what they have taken away from them, which doesn't make sense with the parable of the minas or the parable of talents as we have it now and, and but it would make sense as sort of a cynical observation you know 
the rich get richer, the poor get poor. That's sort of the point right, of the original right. parable of Jesus. But Matthew turns it into in a different, very different way. And, and, you know, Matthew makes it into this parable about um, faithful discipleship. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I was fascinated by what you had to say about Calvin and grace and how this was all grace. Because from Matthew's perspective, he's not really focusing on that at all. He's focusing no. on, 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 I mean, ergazomai is one of the verbs. It's the main verb. They traded with the, with the, with the, with the money. They, they worked with right. the money. And, and, you know, good works in Matthew, producing fruit, doing fruit. It's the verb poieo, which we also find in, 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 in similar mm-hmm. parables about faithfulness. Doing fruit, producing fruit, you know, doing good works doing the will of the Father, fulfilling all righteousness. These are the themes we've heard that, that shape Matthew's view of consistent discipleship. Um, and, and so, you know, Matthew is trying to, I think, take this parable and, and shift it in a whole different direction. And, and unfortunately, you know, I, I, again, I, I really was, was interested in, in Calvin's reading of the parable, but I think the structure of the parable itself kind of goes against that. Right. Well, here's my question, though. He ties it in directly to the bridesmaids before it. So is a bridesmaids parable supposed to be informing this parable? I think so. Doesn't I think uh, so. Well, go, explain how, uh, you know, because the bridesmaids parable, well, I guess depends how you read that. But if yeah. if you're reading that on also some type of 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 perseverance type of way, you know, this way that maybe Calvin read it, yep. then you can it see that. It could be that a positive. It could be a positive. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. But, but I suppose you... But from my perspective, Matthew intends both of them to be warnings of judgment, you know, and, and that's the yeah. point that Matthew is, is bringing out. This is, that's, that's the whole point of this, of this chapter is, is it's a warning but of judgment. judgment. And the third one, the judgment against the, the one guy who has the talent that doesn't increase it. I mean, by the guy that we're not supposed to like because he's an evil landlord. I'm a little bit confused. Well, and you know, in, in, but see in Matthew, I would say in Matthew's, in Matthew's version of the parable, he has shifted the original intent of Jesus parable. The original intent of Jesus parable was to criticize the greediness of, of aristocratic landowners and, and maybe even Gentile client Kings. But uh, Matthew has shifted it. So the master in Matthew's parable is Jesus. And, and so, you know, we, mm-hmm. as Lutz points out, yeah, you know, the, Matthew's okay. community would have, would have seen the master in, in, in Matthew's parable as being the same one who says, I am gentle and humble of heart and my yoke is easy and my right. burden is light. Right. Or the uh, many other statements of grace that right, you find right, in right. Matthew's gospel. But there still seems to be judgment against the one guy with the There is, and that's, that seems to be Matthew's reading. That, that's where okay. I think Matthew's view of judgment, and as I mentioned last week, it's almost as if he has taken his cue from John the Baptist, and, and John the Baptist has this idea that the kingdom of right, God is right. all about judgment, so much so that when Jesus doesn't carry out that judgment, he, asks, he sends his messengers from prison saying, well, right. are you really the one or should we look for somebody else? Because right. it doesn't well, make sense to John. That. Well, and here's the question, you know, is going through my mind. Okay, so great. We know that Matthew has a different take than Jesus. Am I going to explain that to a bunch of people? Probably not. So... How do you make sense of it in terms of a, a clear version for, for, 
for a congregation to follow. I mean, if you're saying, well, Matthew shifted the meaning of Jesus' parable to be this, I don't think your our people are going to understand that. So yeah. you, we try to reconstruct it as the one that Jesus had given. Well, honestly, um, that's what I did three years ago when we had this mm -hmm. parable in the lectionary cycle. Both for, for both of these parables, for both the parable of the mm -hmm. bridesmaids and for the parable of the talents. Um, and, um, you know, basically, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, the, the sermon that I preached on this one, which you can find at my sermon blog, The Waking Dreamer at blogspot.com, by the way, um, um, was nothing to earn. I think that was the title of the sermon, was nothing to earn. And I point, oh, yes. basically, I pointed out, you know, none of what we, when we walk away from the parable as Matthew frames it, with this focus of emphasis on the third slave who has mm -hmm. has his his talent stripped away from him and he's thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and nailing, mm -hmm. gnashing of teeth, which is an image of hell, right, in Matthew's gospel. Mm -hmm. None of this sounds like what Jesus says about the God who blesses the poor in spirit, those who mourn, right. the meek, those who right. hunger and thirst for righteousness. None of this sounds like the God who freely gives the blessing of sun and rain to all alike, good and bad, evil and righteous. None of this sounds like the God who feeds and clothes those who have little faith, and, and none of this sounds like the God who gives good things to anyone who asks, like, like any parent would give to a child, right? I mean, right. in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, we have this statement about if, you're, if your child asks you for a fish, you're not going to give them a serpent, you know, you're not going to give them a right. snake, and, and, right, and right, how much right. more is God going to be that way? Um, right, right. So, I mean, there's, and and so basically, um, there's a there's an there's an article by a guy named David J. Neville in the Journal for the Study of the New Testament in, from 2007 toward a teleology of peace, contesting Matthew's violent eschatology. There are a lot of people who study Matthew who who see the mm -hmm. violent endings, quote unquote, in Matthew's mm -hmm. eschatological parables, and and basically says that you know the, these violent outcomes in the end times parables of Matthew gospel contrast the nonviolent vision grounded in the basically indiscriminate love of God that you find in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Right. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, and basically what I have done in a sermon like Nothing to Earn is emphasize mm -hmm the other aspects that you find in Matthew's gospel that seem to resonate right. more clearly with Jesus. I agree. And, and basically yeah. I, I took the, took the parable of the talents and, and turned it on its head to some, some extent and said, you know, you know, in, in the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed, there is nothing to earn because right. it's all about God's grace and God's love. So in a sense, I yeah, was sort I of following Calvin there. <laughs> I think, well, and that's where I think I'm going to head with it as well. This actually, which people don't realize, is what Calvin had seemed to be as a hopeful theology, right? Mm -hmm. um, hopeful confidence. Confidence is you're saved. You're called into the church. You're, you're going to respond in grace. Um, you, can, you can have confidence that God's yes. working in you. And I think yes. that's really beautiful. And I, I, think, um, I think that's definitely the, the way I'll take it. And, you know, we, I just went to a stewardship conference that I pledged to kind of focus my my vision on gratitude and i think this can mm -hmm. be viewed in a gratitude mm -hmm. kind of way and so i think it will tie in well but i'm not gonna lie this one's hard and i think yeah. i think we have to do a careful job when we're framing it um well and and honestly when i preached these parables three years ago i did frame it from the perspective of matthew frames it this way but that's not what jesus says 
Right. But right. but but three years ago, I had been the pastor of this church for five years. <laughs> right. I think I think you have to you have to you have to approach something like this. Right you know, with some wisdom right. as to where you are in your ministry in a church. Right. Have you established think, your, yourself on a footing where you can address something like this with your congregation in the sermon? I agree, Alan. I think they have to grow with you in yep. terms of how they understand Scripture. And, yep. you know, being in a new call and having folks that come from many, many different traditions and not have don't have a real theological center at that congregation, especially with me, I, we're not quite ready to go there yeah, yet, yeah. but we may be in five years. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. Good point. There you go. So, well, thanks everybody. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.